Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. On today's show, Tanlis Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he discusses the BC government's decision to exclude cannabis producers from carbon rebates. And we're also going to talk about some potential problems of packaging cannabis edibles. Before we get to that, though, I do want to mention some upcoming BIV events. February 21st at the Shangri-La Hotel, we're going to have an event on due diligence and valuation when buying a business. Then February 28th, again, at the Shangri-La, we are facilitating an expert retirement-ready panel discussion on how to retire. And then finally, March 8th at the Fairmont Waterfront Hotel, we're going to have the 20th anniversary of the Influential Women in Business Awards. That's coming up. Go to BIV.com slash events for details on all of those. And a little later on on today's show, Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Fawkes, she's going to discuss this past week's biggest stories in the tech sector. We're going to discuss everything from Amazon pulling out of New York City, warnings from TELUS over a potential Huawei 5G ban in Canada, and the cryptocurrency drama surrounding Quadriga. Now, let's talk to Dan Sutton from Tantalus Labs. And with us today, it's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the show once again. Glad to be here. Okay, so last week, the province revealed that cannabis producers are not eligible for carbon rebates the same way that other greenhouse agricultural producers are. No real explanation was provided by the province. Do you have any theories about what's going on here? Can you kind of break down what this means for producers like yourself, like Tantalus Labs? Yeah, I think this is an unfortunate microcosm of a perception at all levels of government that cannabis companies are these massive, monolithic, overfunded public companies that are making tons of money and should be paying more than their fair share of tax. Now, unfortunately, the reality is that there are some cannabis companies that have been very generously uh, funded by public publicly traded vehicles, but that is not the status quo. Most cannabis companies are small startups and ultimately they are farms. So do you think that there is, let's say hypothetically, all of these greenhouse producers are eligible for the carbon rebates? Uh, Would you anticipate that even the big giants would be cashing in on this? Could that have like a notable impact on taxpayers? I'm just wondering if there's maybe some sort of balance that the province could be examining further down the road. I think it's really important to qualify that no cannabis companies are profitable today. Very few are past their cash flow break even, and especially the large producers have a long way to go to generate the hundreds of millions in revenue that they need to be able to sustain their businesses. Mm -hmm. So perhaps one day finding overshares of syntax to be able to counter, you know, the massive uh, revenue potential for some of these companies is entirely reasonable. I don't think that exemptions from carbon taxation or lack of exemptions are the way to do that. Greenhouses in British Columbia have foregone their carbon tax because they are not massive carbon emitters. And ultimately, their use of natural gas is essential to perpetuating the farming economy here in this province. Cannabis is no different. This is a crop that is a lot of farmers are diversifying towards to be able to save and sustain their currently struggling farming businesses. Now, forgive my ignorance, I, I am, uh, and correct me as I go through here, but uh, Tantalus Labs, you guys kind of, I guess, market yourself as like kind of a craft producer of, of some sorts, as opposed to like the, the Budweiser of the cannabis industry. 
Uh, is that kind of impacted at all because it's kind of a greenhouse operation? Are there actually like large scale greenhouse operations of that we could say would be the equivalent of the, the Budweiser of cannabis right now? Absolutely. So our facility is substantially smaller than your average greenhouse size for other crops here in British Columbia. <clears throat> we also use a small batch production strategy where we're actually harvesting smaller cohorts of production crops every 10 days or so. That allows us to get more of a meticulous detail, more of a uh, specialized harvest strategy, and more genetic diversity uh, in those those crops as they harvest in, in smaller uh, cohorts. So that then allows us that tighter degree of control. And that is very different than a production strategy at a large scale greenhouse. But nonetheless, we still use natural gas. We still use hydroelectric power. And as a result, uh, we, we still benefit substantially from the same credits and farm classification that greenhouses of other crops would benefit from. And let's talk a little bit about what these rebates could potentially do for your business, though. What would the impact be if you guys were eligible, essentially? So being a greenhouse, we do use substantially less energy, both electricity and uh, natural gas for heating, as we would if we were an indoor grower. Now, that said, power or energy is still likely probably 50% of our cost burden. So this is a substantial line item for us. Some of these carbon rebates allow for 80% cost reduction uh, in in. The, the use of this energy and the demand for this energy. And so the impact on our bottom line would be substantial. And that's a, do you think that this you know, decision from the province would dissuade other potential businesses from pursuing, say, greenhouse if they know that they're not going to benefit from these rebates? Or do you think it's kind of a choice uh, that a lot of these producers want to make and go ahead and per- pursue it regardless of some of the incentives? I think it's a really critical incentive to motivate cannabis operations to think in the context of a farm, we're past the days where the way to grow cannabis is in a massive bunker. That is, you know, a a stealth prerogative that we've talked about many times on this show that ultimately is not in the spirit of, of farming and crop production that we see in cannabis production today. And so I think the government should be endorsing greenhouse production. The government should be endorsing cannabis as farming, and that will further reduce the energy burdens associated with cannabis on the grid and in general. Okay, so let's uh, jump away from this topic and uh, let's talk about something else with regards to, say, edibles. Uh, We've spoken a lot about how there's maybe going to be some hurdles that we'll have to uh, get over on our way to the fall when they will be legalized here in Canada for recreational purposes. Uh, Tell us a little bit about maybe some of the concerns over packaging because there are some proposed limits on TH see doses within the products that are going to be sold. What does this mean for, I guess, the sustainability of packaging of these edibles moving forward? So I think there's been a vocal minority of concerned cannabis constituents that are used to taking really heavy doses of edibles. There is a subset of the cannabis using population, especially the medical cannabis consuming population that have become so habituated to THC that they might need doses you know, five or 10 times higher than the averages that you might see in a recreational audience. So the limits have been proposed that maximum of 10 grams of THC can be put in one package. I personally think that's a completely appropriate limit. Uh, I've been making some of my own edible cannabis, uh, getting can- medical cannabis gift or edible cannabis gifted to me from friends. And me personally, I'm a 230 pound, six foot three, relatively large individual. 
10 milligrams definitely elicits a psychoactive effect in me. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there is a large population that necessitates 50 or 100 milligrams per dose and that they will then drive you know, the amount of packaging down, I think that's just incorrect. I just think there are not a lot of people out there that need that much. And the number one conversation I have with anybody, my friends, you know, different constituents, different people around edible cannabis is that, wow, one time I ate too much and wasn't it a nightmare. Right. I think it's definitely both the industry and the government's responsibility to give people uh, a, a, an edible cannabis dosing that isn't doesn't need a lot of math. It doesn't need people chopping up tiny squares of chocolate into these micro slivers to be able to get the appropriate dose. I think we've seen edibles dosed far too high in uh, analogous U.S. jurisdictions. And ultimately, a single dose of 10 milligrams is going to be plenty. I would probably recommend more two and a half or five milligrams for first-time users that want to uh, test their limits on edibles. And, and forgive my ignorance here, but do you think it's likely that that they will be having uh, different, I guess, doses available in the packaging that comes up. You know, there's a maximum uh, that's been proposed of, say, 10, but do you think that there's going to be kind of different tiers for, you know, beginner, intermediate, and so on? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, there are some companies that will really want to maximize the dosage that they can put into uh, one package, and there are others that will say, if you're trying this as an inexperienced user, here's a dose that's very unlikely to make you inebriated or to put you into a, 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 a mental state where you might feel concern. And those dosages certainly should hover around that sort of two and a half to five milligram mark. So you don't anticipate in about six, seven months time that we'll see all these packages littered about city sidewalks because people are just having to get, I guess, like 20, 30 you know, milligrams of uh, dosages. I hope that the people that are consuming edible cannabis don't litter. Uh, yeah. That's certainly yeah. a concern. And I mean, I think this is a microcosm of a broader issue on packaging where people perceive now legal cannabis having these packaging obligations around child resistance, around resealability. Um, and those those concerns are warranted. There is a substantial amount of packaging that needs to go into the high standards of child resistance, especially that Health Canada has proposed. But ultimately, this is no different than you know, an, an Advil container or uh, even like packaging on fast food. Uh, so we need to really contextualize that packaging on regulated goods is, uh, does serve some social missions and the recyclability, the ability to conveniently deposit these packages is uh, another aspect of this that I think we have yet to explore. So at this point, you as a producer, you don't feel as if the industry is facing, say, undue expectations from government when it comes to ensuring things are packaged in safe ways that make sense for, I guess, consumers at large. I think that if we saw more relaxed strategies or more relaxed obligations around packaging, then there would be other negative stories that would come out of it. Uh, certainly, when it comes to edibles, especially confectionery edibles, we have a huge vested interest in making sure that children don't have access and don't accidentally ingest these products. Uh, with flowered cannabis and pre-rolled joints, maybe that might be less of a concern, but we really need to demonstrate the data uh, before we can go to government and say, look, these packaging uh, requirements are, are over, overburdensome or unnecessary. And I think that there's a huge social value in keeping especially young kids away from, um, from edibles. And that's partly to do with the responsibilities of the parent and the household, but also industry would suffer negative consequences if these packages were less child resistant. Uh, Dan? Great to have you on the show once again. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. And stay with us, Linda Fawkes from Glue Technology Society. She joins us next to talk about the latest news in the tech industry. 
And with us right now, it's Linda Fawkes. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society. Linda, great to have you on the show to talk all about the latest news in the tech industry. Thanks, Tyler. Okay, so I think the big thing that broke last week that we have yet to discuss, though, is Amazon is now pulling out of its plans for New York City headquarters. Instead, it's going to grow its current offices in North America. So my first question here for you is, do the people in New York City actually kind of have a point here that maybe Amazon is a bit of a a nightmare to a certain degree if they kind of roll into town they can have some undue you know impacts on the economy as well as just say hiring etc etc yeah i think it's a, a real nightmare when you've got one of the richest companies on the planet requiring subsidies uh, being able to dictate rules and negotiate in secret um and perhaps without the best intentions of the community they're moving into at heart, just looking out for themselves. So I think that's not a good thing for any community to have. Uh, nice to have Amazon in your back door, but um, perhaps too high a price to pay. Well, I think there were some sighs of relief when Vancouver realized that it was not going to be getting HQ2 because I think a lot of people in the tech industry were looking at how, say, you would put a lot of uh, pressure on, say, real estate in the area, uh, both office as well as residential real estate. It put a lot of pressure on just wages that they would have to be uh, paying employees. Although I can't really, you know, uh, dissuade people from wanting to make more uh, here in Vancouver. But do you think that if we do have more Amazon workers pouring in now that the New York City plan is not going to come to fruition, do you think that some of those concerns could be raised once again here in Vancouver? Well, I noticed the uh, in reading uh, some research for our chat today, I noticed that the BC government was touting that we had some of the lowest tech wages in the industry, North America wide. Um, so I think we have room for improvement on that. So if we can bump those tech wages up for our BC tech workers, that's a great thing. And I love the idea that Amazon... Um, maybe they expand what's happening um, with their HQ too, but we're going to start to see our Amazon campus grow. And we're going to have now potentially 5,000 Amazon workers in our city. That's not going to do too much damage to our our um, amount of square footage we lease to Amazon. They're not going to own any huge building. They're not going to dominate the um, the workforce here. We have 100,000 tech workers in BC, right? Another 50,000 in tech in other sectors. So I don't think they're going to do much more than uh, perhaps uh, raise the game a little bit and hopefully raise the wages as they do it. So some pressure uh, might be good. Okay. Uh, The other thing that we need to talk about, it's been all over the news, of course, is I guess Quadriga. That's that cryptocurrency company that had the exchange based here in Vancouver. The CEO who is in Halifax, he passed away very suddenly and the passcodes giving access to these accounts, which accounted for about a total of $260 million, it's just kind of frozen in the ether right now. To use a story like this, I don't know, like just a, a, a one-off sort of freak accident, or is it more of a cautionary tale about doing your due diligence and ensuring that you are going to be with a company that has, say, backup plans of some sort? And doesn't seem as if there were any backup plans at all with Quadriga. Well, we've got the uh, security guys saying uh, putting your money in crypto is like putting your money in cash under someone else's mattress. So they, they think that's a really bad plan. And then the crypto guys saying we never store money in a, um, a custodial account. You're not going to put any of your crypto, sorry, on any kind of exchange. So they think that's a, a crazy thing to do. So these exchanges are problematic. There's not a, a, a clear winner 
um, it's complicated to get money in and out, and you're basically giving your crypto to a bunch of guys in a startup. Is that a smart thing to do? And and by the way, the the, the cold wallet, the the password on a piece of paper is not an uncommon way for these people to secure their accounts. They're memorizing these passwords is another strategy, right? So that's not as as uh, reckless as it seems. I think it's just that we don't have an exchange we can trust. Yeah, I just wonder if people are fundamentally, I guess, approaching cryptocurrencies from the wrong way. They, they weren't meant to be like investment vehicles. And, and that's what it seems everybody has been using them primarily for. Because I don't know, do you really hear uh, often about, you know, hey, I went to the restaurant, paid in Bitcoin. I mean, there were restaurants trying to promote that, but it never took off here over the last few years. It hasn't taken off. And I guess um, um, we were trying to get these ABM, these automated um, automated Bitcoin machines happening. But it, it, in fact, it's just a complicated process. Yeah. And But it is a new asset class people are getting excited about. And this fear of missing out is what's driven the price. What was it? An all-time high of $19,000, right? Bitcoin down at 3900 now US. But um, I think it's just a lot of hype. Um, I, I do believe we may be looking at this in the same way as the dot-com bubble. Uh, we don't have a titan of the industry yet. These people are going to start to fall. The industry's crashing, perhaps. And will it settle out with some Amazon and Google of the crypto world taking over and making it simpler for us? But right now, my mom is not going to pay for her seniors' fitness classes with Bitcoin, and I'm not paying for my WordPress plugins with it because it's just too much of a hassle. Yeah, There's no exactly. gain for me. Uh, you brought up the ABM. There is a mall nearby our uh, newsroom here that actually has one of those Bitcoin banking machines. Yeah, I've seen them in Toronto. I, I've never seen anyone using them once. I walked past it in Toronto right out front of the Whole Foods and thought, oh, that's sort of kind of cool. And then I looked at the interface and went, oh, I can't be bothered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that I want to talk about here, though, is, well, the Huawei, ongoing Huawei drama. And the latest here is that TELUS is making a push to investors saying, look, maybe we need compensation if Ottawa is going to go ahead and ban 5G Huawei equipment going forward here. Do they have a point, though, if they've been making investments for a long time, the government hasn't put an end to it now, and then suddenly the government comes in and says, no, we are banning this 5G equipment moving forward. Does TELUS seem to have a case for demanding some sort of compensation from Ottawa? I think so, absolutely. And I think um, some of the experts are pegging that price tag at around a billion dollars. Yeah. So if the federal government is going to say, you need to change your equipment manufacturer, your supplier, then um, and they're giving security reasons why, national security reasons why, I would fully expect that this is a problem the federal government needs to pay for to clean up. The thing that I find curious that, that broke over this past long weekend, though, is that there are reports that the UK is not going to pursue a significant ban. There will be security measures taken, but it's not going to be the same sort of ban that we see in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, uh, all part of our Five Eyes intelligence allies. And I wonder if that takes a significant amount of pressure off of Canada to go forward and ban 5G equipment from Huawei outright here in this country as we develop our new network. Yeah, so GCHQ and MI6 over in the UK talking about um, that there are some changes they would like to see Huawei make to uh, allow them to participate in their 5G network. They're not going to be allowed in the inside of the network, but in the external, more controllable areas of the network. Experts are kind of laughing at that a little bit. But it is a real um, wobble on their position. They're pretty clear 
about a year ago. And now they're saying, yeah, we can contain it. I'm not too sure Huawei is going to take a lot of direction from the UK on how they develop their software and how they manufacture their hardware. Um, but it is a, a surprising statement from them. And even MI6 directors said this, this is a very complicated issue. So it's not, it's not simple and, and it doesn't place Canada in an easy position now. We, we, who are we aligning with? The UK is now uncertain. What are we going to do with our uh, security of our networks? And, you know, we're moving into a time when data is all that matters. And we're talking about creating a network that controls all the data in the world. This yeah. is a really big deal. This isn't a, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we had it? This is a really critical infrastructure that's going to carry us for many, many, many decades. So we want to make it right, make it secure, respect national boundaries as much as we can and, and work with the companies we can trust. Well, how much do you think it is, you know, legit concerns regarding espionage versus, and this, the, the other theory though, is that maybe this is more of a, an American led campaign to contain a big technology giant coming out of China. It's very hard to know where the conspiracy theories end and reality uh, begins. I think that we had the big chip scare with uh, ZTE and Huawei about a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know how, what control the uh, Chinese government has over Huawei. Huawei is saying we don't uh, participate in espionage on the nations we work in, but the Chinese uh, intelligence agency said you will if we ask. You're right. going to hand it over. So this is a it's a very tricky time, and I can obviously see that it's complicated, but it's um. You know, you hear from a lot of the experts, though, and it seems as if more and more of the consensus is that Huawei is not actively trying to create these espionage networks, but it's totally possible that Beijing has the ability to harness into that, tap into that. And let's say, let's be honest, it is an authoritarian regime, which would have, say, less uh, due diligence for the principles behind law than we would see in other developed nations at this point. So I think there are some very legitimate concerns about the technology moving forward that everyone should be very much aware of. And where that leaves Canada with two of our big three networks going forward, possibly with Huawei equipment for 5G, that, that would have you know notable impacts here. I, I just wonder if the PR campaign being waged against Huawei right now is going to be very effective. And there's going to be a lot of Canadians, say on Bell or TELUS moving forward, that simply would shift over to Rogers, which should not be using Huawei 5G equipment. I'd like to think that the consumer cares. I don't think the consumer cares. Yeah. I think that price is going to be a big issue for people. The billion dollars is going to get paid for by somebody. I'm guessing that's if that's the restructuring of the network to get Huawei out. That price tag, no doubt, will fall somewhere down to the, at the consumer level. Um, that's why we need government to care about this issue. That's why we, what we're talking about right now is Huawei may be the cheapest right now, uh, but price parity is going to happen. Nokia, Ericsson, Samsung, they're going to come out with tech that's similar. They're going to come out with a price point that works. So are we rushing it at this point? Hard to say. We're pushing hard for 5G. But we are charging ahead with Huawei because they're offering the cheapest price. And, and TELUS is wisely saying, hey, we can't afford to do this within the budget we've got. You're going to have to uh, cut us a check, you know, Canadian government, to make this happen for us. And I really believe that consumers, at the end of the day, this is a complicated issue. We're even having a difficult time um, putting my words to it. So I believe the consumer is just going to go for price first. This is going to get 
put in the background. Yeah, you, you talk about the consumer. I, I keep going back to maybe the conversations we're having throughout much of 2018 with regards to the Facebook privacy concerns. And as egregious as those were, I, I think a lot of consumers kind of shrugged and said, well, uh, I'm still going to use Facebook. It's convenient for me. That's right. And and, and cons- when we said that data is all that matters, data is how these companies are tracking us, how they're putting together profiles on us that are as unique as our fingerprint. Uh, we need to start understanding that when we give companies data or allow companies access to the data flow that we're creating with our phones, our connected devices, soon to be our medical health records, our dri- self-driving cars and connected homes. This is a Uh, an immense data flow that is going to be harvested by companies. And what we're talking about is creating a network that allows entities to be part of that network that are allowed to look at all that data and take it and perhaps take it at times where we don't understand they're taking it. So we need to somehow as consumers decide to step up and be part of the conversation or be prepared to be giving up um, the data and the uniqueness that is you online. So I guess we are now longing for the days of tin cans and shoestrings <laughs> to communicate uh, much more safely. I Back to the landlines. Yeah. yeah. Well, Linda, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tyler. That's Linda Faka, CEO of Glue Technology Society. And that's it for sh- the show today. We're going to be back tomorrow. But for now, you can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher. We also encourage you to share with your friends and leave a review as it's going to help other people find this podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening. 